Hi everyone, it's Casper here. We've got some fabulous live shows coming up that we hope you'll be able to join us for. We're in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 2nd, Washington DC on November 7th, Chicago, Illinois, where my uncle was born, on November 21st, and St. Louis on December 19th. We hope to see you there. Chapter 8, The Quidditch World Cup. Clutching their purchases, Mr. Weasley in the lead, they all hurried into the wood, following the lantern-lit trail. They could hear the sounds of thousands of people moving around them, shouts and laughter, snatches of singing. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Tekhile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We are very excited this week to welcome Kevin T. Porter, who is a writer, a comedian. He's from the amazing podcast Gilmore Guys and now from the incredible new podcast Good Christian Fun. And he's going to tell us a story about the theme of fandom. Kevin, welcome so much and thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me here. What an honor to be here. This is my first Harry Potter podcast, so it's uh, it's a big deal for me. And we should say we were inspired by Gilmore Guys as one of the ways to think about how we could read the Potter books and look for joy and meaning. So thanks for all the work that you've done on that. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you for saying that. I like the idea of using a topic as a vehicle for another kind of conversation. So it's like... You know, your show is technically about Harry Potter in the sense of that's what you search for to find it, but it's about so many more other things. And and Gilmore Guys, even though that was not the intention, it ended up becoming about other things the more and more we did the show. So it's nice to see shows kind of carry on in that tradition rather than just like, I like that Harry did this. I don't like that Harry did that in that kind of binary way of criticism rather than, oh, but what does this say about us? What does this say about the characters and the broader themes of what they're talking about? Yeah. Exactly. And we want to hear more about, because that's a lot of what you're doing with Good Christian Fun, too. But let's hear your story, and then we'll ask you a little bit about your new project. Does that sound good? Sure, yeah. Okay. So... On the topic of fandom, I feel like the fandom of which I've belonged to the longest, or one of them, would be for Mr. Bruce Springsteen. So it's 2008, and I go to my first Bruce Springsteen in the E Street Band concert ever. Now, Bruce Springsteen, for me, that was kind of the alpha and omega in high school as far as music goes. I didn't have a wide palette of taste. I listened to some musicals, some soundtracks, and pretty much exclusively Bruce Springsteen. Through luck and happenstance that night, we got on the front row of that show and had a concert experience unlike anything. We had never gotten into the pit before. We had never seen him up close and personal. And it was like, it was a transcendent night. It was everything that you would want from a concert in a show like that. Singing along to every song, knowing every word, exchanging glances with everyone in the band, including Bruce. And it's one of those things every time the date comes up it was april the 14th i send them a little text like i can't believe it's been five years six years seven years eight years ago and that night i met a woman named leslie who would become a friend of mine that i would see occasionally at these shows over the years so cut to four years later and i'm in phoenix arizona he's on a different tour it's a different time 
And who should I happen to see at the show again but Leslie, who I met in Houston that first night. We see each other, we freak out, we give each other a hug, we talk about how we like the new album, what we don't like about the new album, and all the fun and nuance that comes with being a longtime fan of someone with a body of work like Bruce Springsteen. But after that conversation, it kind of strikes me that it's not the same anymore. Even in a not that old age of 22 years old, I felt a sort of alienation and a not belonging anymore. Even though that first night in Houston lives in my memory as epic and legendary and nothing can ever take that away, there is something about growing up, growing older, moving away, starting a career of my own and a life of my own, and even seeing old friends like Leslie, who I enjoy and love. It's a nice reminder that sometimes being a fan is not an all-in, all-or-nothing commitment for the rest of your life forever. Sometimes fandoms and the way they function in your life is just for a season and just for a time and just because you don't care as intensely and as deeply as something when you were 16 that you do at the age of 26. It doesn't mean that there's less value to having participated in it at all. But I think sometimes... It's okay to engage and to walk away. Kevin, I so resonate with your story because I think fandom and just the experience of intensity that you have with whether it's music or with theater or even with podcasts, like they come and they go and they speak to a specific time in your life. And those moments of fandoms are really about having an intense experience from which we then grow. And I don't, we might need a different fan experience. I think the idea of loving something like beyond rationality is something that maybe is going to be there forever, but what it is changes. I, I love that your story kind of illustrates that. Well, I feel like it's, it's almost like some relationships just because they yeah. work out in the indefinite sense and you marry that person, you're with them forever. It doesn't mean that they're either wastes of time or failures. It just means that certain things are for certain seasons and they can have value for those times in your life without, you know, being infinite in that way. But I do wonder, like, there is something about fan love which feels, it's kind of like nerdiness. That There's an unashamed, unabashed enthusiasm about it. That Like, there's something raw and beautiful and, like, I, d I don't know what it is. And I wonder from, you know, your work with the Gilmore Guys podcast, what did you learn about yourself being a fan? Did it end up shaping how you were able to love other things and people? I'm just so curious about that. Yeah, so I think I think doing the podcast made it so... Because I was a fan of the TV show before I did the podcast, I think all the things I really enjoyed about the show, I enjoyed even more. And the things I didn't like about the show or kind of would brush past, I deeply <laughs> disliked or resented about it. <laughs> I think overall, the, the experience of doing the Gilmore Guys podcast taught me cultural discernment and the sense of everyone's always saying something, even when they're not saying something. People can say, oh, it's just a summer movie, turn your mind off, or oh, it's just some breezy TV show, don't worry about it. But Everyone is always messaging something consciously or not in everything that they're doing. And I don't think it takes the fun out of it to analyze such things and, and to kind of suss that out and to extricate that in that communication. But I think for me, 
that is part of the fun is what's going on here? What what are we trying to do? What does it say about us? Oh, yeah. I never paid attention to Suki's clothes until you guys went through <laughs> and analyzed every outfit. A perfect example. It's a great example. I've started thinking about, I'm like, are they fat shaming her? Why are they always putting her in these ridiculous outfits? It's really given me something to chew on whenever I rewatch an episode every night. I mean, you know, every couple of years. Every I couple re-watch. of years. Oh, right, 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 right. But, Kevin, we also want to hear about your new project, Good Christian Fun. Can you just tell our listeners about it if they haven't heard about it yet? Sure. So Good Christian Fun is a podcast I started with my co-host Caroline Ely. And we both had very conservative Christian upbringings, so we were very exposed to a lot of Christian pop culture, which is Christian movies and music, a lot of Christian rock and Christian video series and stuff. And it's an interesting, weird, upside-down world, almost like a parallel universe to mainstream culture. And we thought it'd be fun to revisit all that stuff and just kind of ask what it was and what was actually going on with it, because... I think the reflexive comedic posture with a lot of religious stuff is derision or mockery. But for us, it's more fun to say, oh, maybe this is good. Most of the time it's not. <laughs> but but uh, <laughs> just kind of asking those questions and going through album by album or book by book and movie by movie and saying, like, could this possibly be good? And so it's a show about Christian culture. It's not a show for Christians or, you know, here to preach to you or make you go to church or proselytize. But yeah, just kind of engage in it and hopefully have some fun, maybe create some empathy and uh, listen to some DC talk along the way. And I love the idea that you are bringing like hope and optimism and an earnestness to something that exactly is usually treated with contempt or humor, but bringing a joyful humor to it. I really love that idea. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us and good luck on the the new podcast journey. We're so grateful to have you with us. Thank you, guys. It was an honor to be here and a pleasure. Thanks, Kevin. Take care. It's time for the 30-second recap, Vanessa, and it is my turn to go first. (laughs) Yes. Casper, are you ready to lead us in the 30-second recap challenge? Yes. The chapters are getting longer, but I'm ready to go. Okay. On your mark, get set, go. Okay, so it's the Quidditch World Cup, and we're really in the game. And so Crumb comes out, and everyone's like, woo! And the island team comes out, and they all have, like, Irish names. And then um, Bagman points to his throat and goes, hello, Sonorous. And then um, the game, um, there's a there's a Fronsky feint, which is important. And then um, uh, Ireland winning by a ton of points. And there's the Velas and the Leprechauns and the fake gold. And, and um, Crumb catches the snitch, and it's 160 to 150. And he's like, oh, I just had to finish it before it was too awful. Well, at least that's what Ron thinks. And then Percy um, breaks his glasses because he's looking down, and then Mr. Crouch is there. That was exceptional. <sighs> There's a lot that I missed, though. Okay. I find that intimidating. (laughs) All right. You ready for your 30 seconds? Yes. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. Over 100,000 people are there, and it's just like mayhem, and there's advertisers, and then there's the villa and the leprechauns and the dancing, and then the game starts, and Harry is watching the game, and so much is happening that Harry has a really hard time keeping up. And then what happens is that Ireland wins, and but Crumb gets the snitch, and everybody's like, oh my god, that happened so fast. And then also everybody is in the top box, and Winky is there, and Winky is waiting for her boss and is afraid of heights, and Hermione is like, house elves, that's so sad. And um, Harry thinks that it's Dobby, but it's not Dobby. And um, yeah, I think Percy is the most important part of this chapter. 
Yeah, we meet Winky in this chapter, which is a huge development. And we see Draco Malfoy and his dad are up in the box as well. There's a lot that's going on here. Yeah, the top box is like a little microcosm of the wizarding world. You see people across classes, across sort of status levels. There's a lot happening in that top box. I think the box is really interesting because, you know, the Weasleys have been given these special tickets and they're up on the box. And at the end, when the trophy is presented, they're right there in the box with the Minister of Magic where the players come up to receive their medals. But my experience of going to a big sports match or even like sometimes a concert is that the most expensive seats, the ones that might have the best view are not necessarily the ones which have the best atmosphere. And whether it's baseball or soccer, like sometimes you want to be in the terraces, as you would say in the UK, because that's where the best singing is. And, you know, you just get the hustle and bustle of the crowd. And it's where the real passion is. Well, you know, people in the box might have to be a bit more formal or they're there with their corporate sponsors or the minister of Bulgaria. And so I wonder if being in this box is actually the best fan experience for Harry and the rest of them. Yeah, probably not. I feel like Fred and George and the rest of them would be having a lot more fun if there weren't political and like job things at stake while they're just trying to watch the game. Also, there would be less risk of them falling from great heights when the Velas start singing and dancing because they'd be on a lower level when they try and jump off the platform. Correct. There is also that literal risk. But I do think regardless of where you are sitting, when you're having a big fan experience, one of my favorite parts about going to a sporting event is the just like crowd drama, right? Right. You get to know the people around you. You get to know like, oh, like he's in a fight with his boyfriend and he, right? Like you get... Through the kiss cam? No, just watching people around you. I feel like people become very communal. It's like, you know, a parent will have to take one kid to the bathroom, the other one doesn't want to go, and you sort of turn around to the people sitting behind you and are like, can you watch my kid? Hi, nice to meet you. He's seven, right? I feel like this happens to me all the time. Totally. And it's in a lovely communal way, but that is not the experience in this box, right? I think because there's more at stake with the power, there's more enmity rather than people coming together and high-fiving and getting excited. But I think so much of that is because you know, there's a shared identity, right? We're all rooting for the same team. And so you're not just a stranger anymore. We're both like Red Sox fans or Yankees fans in ways that make you have an intimacy very quickly. I remember when I went to the only Leeds United game that I've been to, and I was maybe 14, 15, and Leeds scored, this like very big shirtless man like picked me up and hugged me in a way that I was like also a little afraid of because like he'd had a couple of drinks. But suddenly there's this, yeah, shared identity, which kind of makes our individual cares maybe disappear a little bit. And I think that that gets to the thing about fandom is just that it's heightened, right? Yeah. When you are a fan of something, everything is heightened. Your commitment to the thing, your passion of it. When someone disappoints you and you are a fan of them, the disappointment is so much harder. And so I feel like the highs of being in an experience where you are a fan of something are so much higher. And the lows are just devastating, right? And that can be everything from like, You know, if you're at a Yankees-Red Sox match and a Yankees fan and a Red Sox fan get into a fight or a couple of years ago, a couple of Dodgers fans beat up a Giants fan into a coma, right? Like these these things go sour so quickly. But then there are also these incredible moments where you have people who would usually not get along coming together over being a fan of a common team. So I'm wondering what it is that sports represents to us that we – 
feel as though so much of our identity is at stake in these moments? That's such a good question. And it's not a new question. I mean, we think about bread and circuses as a way to control the masses, right? The Olympics movement is one of trying to build peace through building relationships through sport. Like sport is a tool for different purposes. So I think it's a super relevant question. I also feel like I noticed that that kind of bigger identity feeds something in me that I want to feel. I want to feel part of something bigger. I want to feel like my identity is allied with a bigger story in some way. And this is the bit that kind of scares me. And I I think Harry and Ron and, and the others do this a little bit as well, is that you kind of forgive your side for doing things that you would never accept from an opposing side. Like Leeds United are known as dirty leads because they're always really aggressive. And like as fans, we kind of take pride in that, but that's not actually a nice thing. I feel like that serving of identity allows us to excuse things that we would never be okay with elsewhere. So is like being a part of a fan community for a sports team, is it similar to being a part of a family or is it similar to being a mob? Right. I feel like it's more like you're part of a nation state. Like you learn only parts of its history and you celebrate only parts of its truths and you kind of hide other things and it feels bigger than a family. And you're like willing to go to war for it. I like the idea of being part of a fan community as being similar to being part of a nation because Jerry Seinfeld has this great joke that at the end of the day you're rooting for laundry. That like when a certain player is on your team, you're like, yeah, Shaquille O'Neal is the best when he was on the Lakers and then he went to the Heat and you're like, screw you, Shaquille O'Neal. You suck. All we care about is the jersey. Right. And like Shaquille O'Neal is not from either Los Angeles nor Miami, right? Like this has nothing to do with where he is from in any meaningful way. It is what shirt he is wearing. And so it seems different than a nation to me because your nation to some extent, I mean, it provides a cultural identity. It like feeds you. It's the roads you drive. Whereas what does a sports team give you? That's such a good point, Vanessa. And I think maybe this is where there's a difference between like a sports fandom and maybe like a fandom around a book or a movie. Because you know, with the Harry Potter fandom, people choose this book. They choose this story in a way that is different from maybe growing up in a family where everyone loves the Lakers. And when you get to choose, you get to choose what kind of fandom you want to enter, whether that's the RuPaul's Drag Race fandom or the Harry Potter fandom, which is, I think, one of the most generous and creative fandoms out there and long lasting at this point. I mean, who would have thought there would be people in a recording studio like decade later, still talking about what it means to us. It feels like those fandoms, you kind of get to choose your own adventure in terms of the values that you care about and the activities that you care about. Yeah. So it does feel like sports fandom is a different sort of fandom. And sometimes you hear these great stories about, oh, well, I'm a Dodgers fan because my grandfather was a Dodgers fan when they were in Brooklyn. And there's this like familial loyalty and acknowledgement of the arbitrariness. I just don't think that there's enough conversation about the arbitrariness of sports fandom, given how high the stakes are of like billions of galleons and like lives at stake, transportation systems are being built around this thing. And I think at the end of the day, we just have to complicate that by reminding ourselves that this is, I just agree with Seinfeld, we're cheering for laundry. Like we're not really cheering for Ireland, right? 
yeah, like who who are we really cheering for? Is it these seven players? Is it the idea that we have of who we are and like that we're better than other people? What are we cheering for when we're a fan? Like, is it what we hope we could be? I mean, that's the other thing with especially these incredible athletes, right? These two teams, the Bulgarians and the Irish, they're doing things that Harry can't do. Like he is looking in admiration. He's using the Omnioculus to slow things down to like, wow, how did they do that? And that's awesome. When you play a sport and then you go watch a professional and you're like, oh my God, I can only imagine how much work it takes to get there. So It might be that that's what we're cheering, like human potential and and physical progress. But most of the time it feels like something something baser and, and maybe more dangerous because that's what happens at the end of this chapter towards the next is when, you know, a group of people start cheering for these kind of hooded figures running rampage. You know, that's another kind of team and there's another kind of fandom that's taken a real nasty turn. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's electric toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please, this is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who have recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Harry Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning non-toxic perfumes and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own floor sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. 
Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. Vanessa, where else did you see kind of this theme of fandom show up in this chapter? Yeah, so a big, bright, shining moment to me was the team mascots to get to come and represent the team. And the way that this is done in America, I don't know if it's the same with teams like Leeds, is that the mascot comes out in a big furry outfit with like a hundred half-naked women. And that is like a whole exploitation ring where like these women, for the most part, do not get paid well. They have to buy their own outfits. It's like just an honor to be half naked on the Dallas Cowboys field in January in the freezing cold. Great. But we see that so keenly in the choice of these two mascots with the Vilas and the Leprechauns. Mm. So the Vilas put on this show that literally men are falling over themselves and risking humiliation. You know, the referee, like, just starts flexing and publicly humiliating himself in front of 100,000 people. Twirling his mustache. And flexing his muscles. I, I mean, I guess I can ask you this as a question. What do we do with the Vilas? So the Vilas are set up as this, like, beautiful, amazing thing that men want to kill themselves over. And then when they start losing, they show their fangs. And then the leprechauns rain fake money down. I mean, the Vilas are sent out to shift the crowd's allegiance, right? Harry says at the end of his kind of inner monologue, well, there'd be no question about who he'd be supporting. Of course he'd support Bulgaria. Yeah, and Ron starts, like, tearing up his Irish rosette and is like, Ireland, whoever. And the leprechauns are throwing out this money, right? So they're both trying to shift the audience's loyalty in some way. And it feels like both of the two things, both the Vila and the leprechauns, are offering something that kind of is metaphoric for what, being a fan of a sports team is about, you know, the the Vilas are like hypnotizing you into kind of being just dedicated and loyal, but you're not getting anything back from them. And then like the leprechauns are like throwing money around as if like you're going to win all these riches if they win a game. And I guess through betting, like that could happen. But that itself is a whole other kind of big exploitative industry. Most often people end up losing money. So both feel kind of like the empty promise of what fandom can be if we're not thoughtful about how we engage. Yeah. And I was just thinking that they also represent sort of the spoils of war, right? Like if you win a battle, you know, as a Roman soldier, you get to like rape and pillage, right? And so you take the women and the money. And it's like, that is the promise. It's like you win and you get the women and the money. And it just seems like this barbaric presentation of that. And again, just like with no self-criticism or even self-awareness. It's like, well, we're in this space. We're in this golden, shiny dome with advertisements being splashed before our eyes and young children plucked from school probably to, you know, train on their rigorous Quidditch schedule, even though they are not of age. And then if you win, you get the glory of money and women, which I just feel like is how we get young men to sign up for the army. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay, so help me understand what could the Vila's anger at the end mean? If those are the spoils of war, what might that kind of the fangs, the, the rage? So I don't think it implies something like great and strong about women, but I would like in this moment, right, we right now are in the middle of women realizing finally that they are being believed when they accuse men of sexual assault, right? Like that is the moment that we are in. Suddenly the world believes women when they say I've been assaulted. And I think that we do hear this like beautiful 
rage of like, okay, now you're listening. Listen to how much you've hurt us. And I feel like it's the flip side of being a woman, I think, is if you are lauded for your beauty and harassed for your beauty underneath that, there is rage. Well, and the terrifying thing is that Arthur is able to just put some earbuds in and the feelers have like zero power anymore. So just that Mm. I'm so struck by the image that you're using of being listened to, how tender that current commitment is. And I'm sure not every woman gets listened to, you know, in the way that some people who are coming forward, thank God, are being listened to now. Well done, you. Casper, this week we are going to do the spiritual practice of Havruta, and it's my turn to bring you a question and a potential answer. So my question for you is why does everybody seem to sort of agree that Crumb made the right decision by catching the snitch? When Crumb catches the snitch, he knows that in catching it, his team is going to lose. And yet it doesn't seem as though a coach has said to him, like, make the decision. The only sort of like inner thoughts we get is Harry says, my theory is that he wanted to end it on his own term. The Irish chasers were too good. Bulgaria was never going to catch up. And like everybody seems sort of by that theory. Nobody seems like mad at him. There's sort of this feeling of like, oh, it's too bad the match didn't last longer. Like people didn't get their money's worth. Like this was such a short match. And the only reason I can think is that we want to keep our heroes our heroes. And so we justify their behavior. But the question is, like, do we actually think that this was a good choice that he made? And my answer is no. It was incredibly selfish. Like, go down fighting with your team. Believe in your teammates and give them a chance. Keep blocking the snitch. If you're the best flyer in the world, make sure that the other team doesn't catch the snitch and wait till you're down by 300 points. They only lost by 10. You know what, Vanessa? That's a really interesting question. And I hadn't thought of this until now, but I actually think that Crumb was late I think that the whole Bulgarian strategy, they always knew they were going to lose the goals. And so, like, it was Crumb's job to get that snitch before they could score 150 points or whatever it was. And, like, they've done that now. And so the sooner he can get it, the more he rescues his own reputation. Fascinating. I think that was their whole strategy. I love that theory and that he is actually... Like, he's already failed. doing the best that he can. Which is why he's not celebrating in any way. Right. Oh, that is such an interesting way to read it. Crumb is a failed hero rather than as a success. Yeah. I mean, Freddie and George even, that puts their bet into a totally different light. Because I thought of their bet as their, like, fundamental belief in Crumb's ability. But if they really believed in Crumb, they would believe that Crumb could get the snitch before the goals were even. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. So, I mean, then I feel like the question is, what are strategies that are just based on one person, right? And we see that in politics right now, right, where, like, some of Trump's ideas when presented by not Trump aren't as successful, right? And we talk a lot in, like, the nonprofit space about founder syndrome when you're sort of not attached to the mission or the skill, but you're just attached to the charisma of a person. Even when that person says, you know, like President Obama, like, this is not about me, it's about this bigger movement. And yet, so much of our admiration and loyalty is to 
President Obama. Right. And Crum might have said, like, a one man strategy for seven person team is a bad idea because, like, if I don't see the snitch, there's only so many faking out things I can do. And, like, there's only so much looking I can do. Right. And so, yeah, I think maybe the real lesson of this Kavruta is that, like, any strategy that revolves too much around one person is a bad idea. Right. And, you know, and if that wasn't the strategy and if Crumb just took this upon himself, then, like, one man acting alone is a bad idea. Either way, doing something too much on your own, which is so interesting because it's sort of the central theme of the book, right? Right. Absolutely. This belief that Harry has that either he's the only one who can do it or he's the only one who should do it for different reasons. You know, he doesn't want to hurt other people, so I'll do it alone. Well, that doesn't work. And and that's the great lesson that he learns is to trust and rely on others and that other people care as much about the things that he does and will do their very best and, and will have gifts that he doesn't have in order to serve that task. Right. And even in the ways that he is uniquely qualified, you know, the way that Crumb is uniquely qualified, the very end of book seven, he still needs Neville to take care of Nagini, right. Right? right? Like he's the only one who can march into that forest, but he still needs other people. And so, yeah, the Bulgarian team, like you just you can't build a team around one person. And I think we see that, you know, as we go through the Triwizarding Tournament, we see Cedric and Harry build this relationship of of ultimately trust and friendship so that they both grab the cup at the same time. And especially through Hermione, there's an opportunity for him to build some sort of link to the other participants. But he's, you know, he's very individualist and quite crude, right? His tactic of making himself have a shark head to get through the second challenge. There's an individualism and kind of a brute force um, rather than a strategic teamwork relational approach that Crumb exhibits. Vanessa, it's time for an ad. Vanessa, our self-created sponsor this week is an idea that we are inviting all our listeners to do, which is in the first week of January to host a little viewing party for all eight Harry Potter movies, one every night with a double bill on Sunday afternoon. I would just like to say that Casper and I were friends before we co-hosted Harry Potter Week together, but it really did solidify our friendship. Yeah, we did it a couple of years ago. First week of January, it's cold and a little snowy out here in Boston. And we would go from one person's house to the next and everyone would bring some food. We'd have dinner, watch the movie together. And all I could do when I was walking or cycling somewhere would go... And I don't want to say that hosting Harry Potter Week is going to change your life, but I am going to say that the night that I hosted, Casper brought over these two lovely humans who really bonded with my dog, and I am now the godmother to their child. So you never know what might happen. We'll put up a blog post with some more examples of what you can do. But it's a really fun thing, especially after the holidays when, you know, everyone seems maybe a little dulled out, and this is a good way to get people together and just celebrate the magic. Yeah, and I like the rigor of it. It's ambitious. You're like, we're going to get together every night this week. Like, that is what we're doing this week is we are watching Harry Potter. It is not for the weak-hearted. And we didn't do Harry Potter Week as a fundraiser, but we did a similar thing with Sound of Music last year where we raised money for the International Rescue Committee and another immigration justice organization. And so if you want to do your Harry Potter Week as a fundraiser, I'm just going to put a plug in for the Houston SPCA. They are still raising money to help place dogs that are victims of Hurricane Harvey. And it's really amazing the way that Houston has come back together and is being rebuilt and having the flooding dealt with so quickly. But a lot of people had to leave their pets behind because pets 
pets were not allowed in the shelters. And so if you want to donate money and really make a difference in the life of a human who will know that its pet is being taken care of and a pet, go to HoustonSPCA.org. And they have a match grant going on right now. So even if you only donate $5, it's really like donating $10. And on their website, you get to see cute pictures of dogs. Even Casper, who's dead inside, went, aw, when I showed him. So go to HoustonSPCA.org and go to our website, HarryPotterSacredText.com, to read about how you can host your own Harry Potter week. And let us know how it goes. Send us emails. Send us make videos while you're all together and send them to us. Oh my God, that would be so fun. We could get like a whole across the country, across the world, Harry Potter watching parties. Yeah, <gasps> no, we we'll send out more information as we get closer to the first week of January. But we'll be doing it, so we hope that you join us. This week's voicemail is from Fran Smith. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, Ariana. Uh, my name's Fran. I'm from Somerset in England. And I have a Harry Potter story that I thought you might like to hear. So when I was nine, back in the late 90s or mid 90s, my mum died and it was just my two sisters, my dad and I at home. And I helped my dad um, write an advert and, and, and find a nanny to look after us girls while he was at work. Um, and we had various applicants and one of them was a single mum with a daughter looking for a a nice family environment for the two of them to live in and my dad was quite open to employing this lady who just so happened to be an author um, and asked me how I thought about it and I was very strongly against the idea um, flash forward five or so years later and it's Christmas and we're watching the TV show with about the success of Harry Potter and about J.K. Rowling's story and my dad turns to me and says I'm pretty sure that lady applied to come be our nanny and ever since it's kind of just been family legend that it was J.K. Rowling and whether it was or not we, we don't really know we never can know but we've just pretty much assumed it was her and it's really played on my mind over the years because in the decades after my mum dying the Harry Potter books have been such a source of comfort and escape and joy and I'm one of those people that just rereads the books on repeat continuously which I, I keep telling myself I should stop doing what I keep doing so I've always felt this tremendous guilt that this lady potentially who brought so much joy into my lives was someone who when she really needed a shot I said no to but on the other hand I was nine my mama died I didn't want people in my home but I guess what I learned from it was that even when you're in a really tough spot you probably have the opportunity to help people and it's probably best for everyone if you do so thanks to the podcast. I love it. You make my commute better. And I love experiencing the books through you guys again. Okay, cheers. Bye. Francis, I love that you've just embraced the mystery of whether it was her or not. It doesn't matter. But it's the the idea of someone who, you know, might be in a place of need can create something so magical that serves not only you, but like so many of us around the world. Um Ah, oh, it's wonderful. And yeah, don't feel guilty. You were nine 
And she, if it was J.K. Rowling, she ended up okay. Just fine. In fact, do you think your dad would still have her contact details? Vanessa, it's time for us to offer a blessing to someone from the pages of this chapter. Who are you giving your blessing to today? So I would like to offer a blessing for the Vilas. We hear a lot about the experience of all of the people watching the Vilas, including the women's experiences of how frustrating it is to watch the men act like such jerks. And I just wonder about the internal lives of the Vilas, what it feels like to be this object of desire and then this like rage object. And I know I'll never know the internal life of a Vila, but it's just a reminder to me of like all of the people on the margins of my life whose lives I should be wondering at. So I would like to offer a blessing for this creature that I know very little about, but I'm sure struggles in a lot of big ways. So a blessing to the Vilas. What about you, Casper? Who would you like to bless? My blessing is actually for someone who's only mentioned in the pages of this chapter. Is that allowed? Interesting. I'll allow it. I just, I feel so enamored with Dobby. Right first, Harry sees Winky from the back and he's like, oh, it's an elf. It must be Dobby. But it's not. It's Winky. And she mentions that, you know, Dobby has got ideas above his station and, you know, house elves do what we are told. And I love that Dobby is just like smashing that sense of self censorship and self-editing and yeah really internalized lack of self-worth because Dobby is just liberating himself from everything he's like yes I am worth it and yes I deserve to be paid and no I won't work if I'm not being paid and at risk of being ostracized from his own elf community as it were so I guess this blessing is for anyone who is doing the work of liberating their heart and mind and yeah willing to step forward into their life in a new way I want to do more of that. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. To what? (laughs) I've never heard of it. That sounds weird. Is it any good? What? what, Sacred? Would I like it? Is it Christian? Yeah, probably. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram, and leave us a review on iTunes. You can also send us a voicemail to harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Next week, we'll read The Dark Mark through the theme of grudges. This episode is produced by Ariana Nedelman, me, Casper Turkheil, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are proud to be part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. And come out to see us at PodCon December 9th and 10th in Seattle, Washington. Thanks to Kevin T. Porter for sharing a story. For Fran Smith for this week's voicemail, our social media manager is Hashi Hetege. Thanks to Rebecca and Charlie Dudley, and of course, Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. Bye. So we're very ex- we're very excited today because we are being welcomed by a special guest, Kevin T. Porter. I love that we're being welcomed. <laughs> we're being welcomed. I welcome you joined. to your podcast. Hello. It's good for you to have finally joined. Thank yeah. you. I really appreciate it. So out of it, guys. Take that again. Shut up. <laughs> Uh, hey, everybody, this is Drew. I, I make a Sleep With Me podcast. We're part of Night Vale Presents, and Sleep With Me is a bedtime story podcast for grown-ups. So if you're looking for something fun to listen to as you get ready for bed or you need a little extra help falling asleep, someone to take your mind off of stuff, just like calling up a goofy friend and saying, hey, tell me a story. 
we're putting on some old sitcom on, on Netflix or something. Uh, it's kind of what Sleep With Me aspires to be. It's a little bit goofier and weirder, uh, but it's also a whole lot more fun. You can find it here at Night Vale Presents or uh, just open up your podcast app and search for Sleep With Me and you'll find it there and subscribe and check it out. Thanks.